You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, I've, uh, yeah, I was out the month of July, and <clears throat> yes, I am taking my oldest to college here in about 10 days, and I'm feeling all the feels, as you can imagine. It is so excited and so, I didn't know you could be like so thrilled and so happy and so excited and then like so sad, like at the exact same moment. We're feeling all that. So we savored some, uh, some time. We did some traveling and um, <clears throat> one, one in particular, I, I was just reminded how um, e- even in the West, even in America, that you go different places in the States and, um, and, and people are different and there's little subcultures throughout our nation even. Like, I don't know if you know this, but Denver is different from Branson. <laughs> I don't know if you know that or not. We were at, we were at Table uh, oh, Lake, Table, table, something, table Rock Lake, table, table Rock Lake, I think is what it, t- something with a table in it, I don't know. We're at a lake, and uh, right outside Branson and Table Rock Lake, there you go, right outside Branson, and uh, it's funny driving around and like there's Jesus billboards everywhere and scriptures, this little place we were outside Branson, and uh, I remember driving with my daughter, and it reminded me, because I'm from Texas, and so it reminded me of being down in the south, because we're driving, and I went the wrong way, and my daughter says, you want to just turn around the, in the church parking lot up there, and I looked, and I thought, which church, because there were like four in my view on this street. So it was, it was interesting, it was funny um, being there and just kind of being reminded of the, uh, uh, of the, of the differences. Um, but I also, I also marvel at how similar uh, it is, like how similar the problems that we share are. And so, so one observation that I made, <clears throat> coming from you know, living in Texas most of my life and then coming to Colorado, I, I know it's just a different, it's a different place here. Um, but there is something that uh, is common to both places, but then there's something that's also very different about it. So here's the thing that I think is common, a struggle that we can have, even as Christians, a struggle that we can have. And I'll, I'll sum it up. There's, there's a psychiatrist who wouldn't give his name, but um, he's a psychiatrist in L.A., psychiatrist to the stars, so I don't know if he wanted to give his name out, but here's what he said. He said, in one year, the average American today probably meets as many people as the average person did in a lifetime a hundred years ago, and yet he's far lonelier. There's a big difference between being lonely and being alone. There's a big difference between being lonely and being alone. And the presence of other people doesn't necessarily help at all. He says, mankind's biggest problem today is simply loneliness. It's interesting, and I, I would say, I, would say I, I agree with this guy, and I, and I get to have conversations with people, and this guy, I guess, does too, like personal conversations, they let their guards down a bit, and I, and I hear this a lot. I don't really have friends, I, and I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of reasons for it. I don't, I don't think our technology and our phones and our gaming and all, like video game, I'm thinking like kids especially, I don't think that's helping us very much. Um, I don't know that working remotely, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, I'm just saying I think it, it, it aids to this as well, the isolation that we might feel and the connection. Um, a lot of division in our country right now, and so uh, you know, I, I'll go this deep with somebody, but I don't want to go even a hair past that, because we might disagree, and then, well, okay, we're not friends with them anymore, and so we'll just keep it really, really surface, and so it's people around us, but we're not really known by them. 
There's a lot of factors for it. And so I see that all over the place. I can tell you, though, it's interesting to me, when we lived in Texas, the, the, the reason for the isolation and loneliness was different than what I generally see here. So um, in Texas, we lived in, um, in Highland Park, Park City's area, if you're familiar with it, very, very affluent area. And I, I would meet with people and talk, and, and it was just this painful thing about, like, I just don't know anybody. You know, I, I've got a million acquaintances, but I'm not known. I don't really know them. They don't know the real me. And there, it was the pride of busyness. I'm going to be overgeneralizing here, but the pride of busyness. It is, I, I need to be all put together. I need to look beautiful. I need to, um, I need to be busy all the time. My life needs to revolve around my, my children and their schedules. And we're good parents because we have, you know, we have our kids just busy like crazy and not getting to bed till 11 o'clock and they're you know, nine years old or whatever it is. And they're in all the sports and all the things and all the stuff. And we drive the cars and we've got, and it was just this pride of like, I need to show how busy I am and I need to show how put together I am. And I have to keep you at arm's arm's length because if I actually let you know the real me, you might not like what you see. I would meet with people all the time and, and we, we would just get talking and I would just, somehow I would just sort of bring this up. I was a, when I was a pastor in Dallas, I would talk to him and go, I'm wondering if you, like, do you really feel like you have deep connections with people? Like, have you really let people in or do you feel like you've got to keep up appearances and you should just see him go, oh my gosh. How in the world did you, did you figure that out? We've only been talking for like two minutes. And I go, well, you're the ninth meeting I had today. And it's the exact same. Like, it's an epidemic. It, it's one of the reasons. It's I need to keep you at arm's length. There may be some people here that that's, that that's a struggle for you as well. If I really let you in, you might not like what you see. I think here in Colorado, one of the things, again, overgeneralizing, <clears throat> One of the things that I see is one of the reasons why we can keep people at arm's length or one of the reasons why um, we may not have the depth of connection and relationship that we want is a lot of times Christian values can be out of step with certain Colorado values. The culture, this ain't the Bible Belt. I figured that out real quick. I remember I was, we, we moved here and I'm walking around outside. I may have told you, I met this, there was a woman here and she was like, oh, hi. And I said, oh, hey, you know, I'm new to the area. And we chatted for a minute and, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm the pastor at the church. I mean, I'd been here for like two or three days or something, you know. And I'm like, I'm the pastor at the church right here. And she looks at the church and goes, oh, yeah, church, it's fine. You know, it never really worked for me. Like, oh, all right, thanks. <laughs> like, thanks a lot. And then just like blew it off. Like, what do you do for a living? Oh, that's kind of dumb. And then just kind of like blew it off and went on to something else. I thought, wow, okay, we're not, in, we're not in Texas where someone might go, oh. And they'll even pretend like, oh, I have a church. What's the name of the church? What's the name of the church? Like trying to think of it because you're supposed to have a church. And now here, it's just very, very different. And so one of the things I've noticed here, and I've talked to several people about this. I will not use your name. Don't worry if you're here. But I've talked to people who feel like I sort of feel a little bit of an isolation I can't go to the depth that I want to go, maybe at work or with my adult children or just my neighbors or, or whatever it is, because I'm concerned if I actually go deep with them, at some point will our values so conflict and they hold that so dearly and I hold it so dearly that all of a sudden, I'm out. Charles Spurgeon has a sermon called Christ's Loneliness and Ours, where he speaks to this. He says, sometimes the child of God endures loneliness arising from the absence of godly society. It may be that in his early days as a Christian, he mixed much with gracious persons and was able to attend many of their meetings and to converse in private with the excellent of the earth. 
But now his lot is cast where he is a sparrow alone on the housetop. No others in the family think as he does. He enjoys no familiar converse concerning the Lord and has no one to counsel or console him. He often wishes he could find friends to whom he could open his mind. He would rejoice to see a Christian minister or an advanced believer. But like Joseph in Egypt, he is a stranger in a strange land. Man, I got to tell you, this is happening all around us, friends. People at work go, man, if I really let my Christianity come through, I wonder if I'll be put in this little category over here of the minority or my neighbors. Or what about my adult kids or maybe a single person is going, how am I going to meet somebody? That's why, you know, when I do weddings now with young people, do you know the number one way people are meeting? Online. And I didn't meet that way, so I have this like reaction to it. I gotta tell you, the more I talk to him, I'm like, I get it. You can go, here's a whole bunch of stuff you should know about me. And then you can go, do you like that or not? Like we're ripping some band-aids off right now, and if you like all this, then we can move on to the next level here. Then we can connect. This is happening all around us. And so when, when we're in this spot of if, I, if I'm loud with my Christianity, if I'm actually public about it, my options are uh, maybe I'm just going to get ostracized. Maybe I'm just going to lose some friends. Maybe even people that go, I agree with you. I just don't want to be associated with you around all these other people. Then all of a sudden I'm by myself. And so the options are, one is I just compromise. Well, I believe this. I stand for this. But ooh, man, if I'm going to lose friends, if I'm going to lose, th- then I'll, I'll, I'll just compromise. Or what's probably more common I'll just be silent, which basically says I now have people around me that don't even know the real me, which is loneliness. This is happening all around us, but we can only go so deep with people or are afraid that, uh, <clears throat> that they might leave. So what do we do? How do, how do we not compromise? Because that's not a good option. How do we not just be obnoxious, one, how, but how do we not just have to keep silent as though we're ashamed of the thing that we profess? And then I will say, because there's going to be some of you here going, what is all this loneliness talk? Like you're in a great spot and you've got deep, deep friendships. I want to show you, too, how can we actually be the church to help rescue some of the lonely in the world in which we live Whoever the loneliest, most isolated feeling person among us is today, you are not as lonely as David was when he wrote this psalm. If you heard it read, <clears throat> he says, my soul's in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Probably we wouldn't write that. David had it worse. In fact, you know where he's writing this? The, the, they call it the superscription of the psalm. It says, uh, Psalm 57, to the choir master, according to do not destroy, that's probably the tune that it's written to, a mitkum, or probably a song, it's some kind of liturgical term, of David, when he fled from Saul, and where is he? In the cave. He's in a cave by himself, writing this psalm, and if you know the story of David, David to this point, this this is pre-Bathsheba stuff, all right, he has been faithful to God. And here he is on the run from the king of Israel, hiding in a cave. 
I don't, I don't know how much you know about the story of David. I went back and I was reading it through again. There were so many details I'd, I'd forgotten. It goes back to when Israel, um, they have judges, and they, they keep going, well, we want a king. All the pagan nations have kings. And God says, you don't want a king. And they go, we want a king. And he goes, you don't want a king. And they go, we want a king. And so he goes, fine, you can have a king. And so Saul is king, and then that goes badly very quickly. And so, so Samuel goes and he anoints David, but it's private. And so he is saying, you are God's chosen man. You are going to be the next king of Israel, but we got to wait out this Saul guy right now. So picture David throughout all this. It goes through, Saul gets tormented by an evil spirit, and he says, I need to hire somebody who can come in and who can play a musical instrument that will soothe me. And somebody goes, I know a guy, his name's David. And so Saul goes, that sounds great, because he doesn't know that David's the next king. And he goes, somebody go get David. And so he unknowingly brings his successor into his court in there to play an instrument to soothe him whenever he is tormented by this evil spirit. And then you've got the story of David and Goliath. You've got the Philistines that are out. Goliath, their champion, comes forward and all the Israelites are cowering in fear. And David goes, who is this that comes and defies the army of the Lord? And he goes out and he defeats Goliath and people start to take notice of David. David forms a relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan, and Saul gets Jealous. He hears this song in this kingdom. It says the women of the kingdom were singing, David struck down ten thousands and Saul his thousands. Ouch. Did you catch that? You guys are both great. David has killed ten thousand and Saul did thousands. That's good. That's good. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said they've ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? He's going to try and take my throne. And it says, and Saul eyed David from that day on. Well, Saul got an evil spirit again, and David came to play, and so Saul tried to kill him, and it didn't work. Saul thought, I'm going to give you one of my daughters, because if I give you one of my daughters in marriage, then you're obligated to me, and I can send you out to battle against the Philistines, and I'll send you out to really rough parts of the battle, and you'll die. That's good. That'll take care of you. And David has none of it. David doesn't, doesn't take the bait. And then he finds out he has a daughter named McCall, and she is beautiful, and she loves David. And he goes, McCall, go, go tell David you like him. And so McCall goes, and, and, or they send messengers, actually, and they say, hey, McCall, do you want to marry her? And uh, same kind of thing. It's one of Saul's daughters. And David kind of looks at her and is like, well, maybe I'm interested this time. But he says, but I can't. Give a bride price, it's called. I can't give you something, Saul, as an honor for the honor of having your daughter as my bride. And he goes, no problem. Here's what you do. To give me this bride price, just go and um, kill some Philistines for me, a hundred of them, and go and bring me evidence that you have killed a hundred of the Philistines. And Saul, you know, it's like, I picture him like high-fiving all his advisors, like, ha-ha, he's going to go out to the Philistines, he's going to have to kill a hundred of them, he's not going to be able to do that. And to his surprise, David comes back and he has killed 200 Philistines, and brings the evidence before Saul. And so Saul gives him his daughter, McCall, as his wife. And it says, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. So far, all David has done is like defeat Goliath and get anointed by God's priest Samuel to be the next king. 
Saul's jealous rage is just going and going. So the Philistines keep coming. David has success against him. His name gets higher and higher esteemed. Saul now has been trying for a couple of years to kill David and to no avail. He keeps trying to kill him. And now he brings in um, his son Jonathan, who's a good buddy with, uh, um, with David. And uh, Jonathan goes and he tells David, hey, my, my, he wants to kill you. He lets him on to what's happening. And then he goes back to Saul and says, let not the king sin against his servant David because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand when he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And so Saul says, you're right. David comes back into his chambers and, and they, they sort of work things out and everything's gonna be great, right? Until David goes out to battle and he has another victory. David went out, fought with the Philistines, struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. And immediately Saul gets jealous, tries to pin him to the wall with a spear again and misses so he sends messengers to David's house to try and capture him, but Michal, his wife, gets wise to it, and so he slips out, and David finally goes to Samuel, the guy that anointed him. He's going to Samuel, going, I have, I have no friends in the kingdom anymore. Saul's out to get me. His messengers are out to get me. And so he finally goes to Samuel. Saul hears that he went to Samuel, and so he sends some people and says, hey, messengers, go get me some soldiers. Go get David for me. Go get him and bring him here so I can kill him. He sends the first group of messengers, and it says as they get close to Samuel and where David is, um, they fall down and they start worshiping and they start prophesying. That didn't go as Saul planned. So he goes, what are you guys doing? Send another group of messengers in there. Sends another group of messengers, and as they get close, they fall down, they start worshiping, and they start prophesying. And he goes, that didn't go as planned. Let's send another group. The third group goes in. The exact same thing happens. And then Saul goes, I'm going to have to do this myself. So he goes to Samuel. And as he gets close, it's even worse. It says he rips off his clothes and he is laying there like writhing around and he is praising God and he is prophesying. Like it's a picture of him being stripped of his royal authority. This is utterly humiliating what's happening to Saul. I'd forgotten some of these parts of the, uh, parts of the story. <clears throat> Jonathan finally checks in with Saul to go, maybe this has changed his heart. And it hasn't. So he gives David a sign and he says, you might want to flee the kingdom, the kingdom of which you will one day be the king. David's desperate. So what do you do? Well, <clears throat> I'm gonna go to the Philistines. I'll go to the enemy and maybe they'll think I'm like a traitor. And so when I go to them, they'll go, well, we'll keep you safe here in our Philistine camp. So David goes to them. This is another part of the story I'd forgotten. So he goes into the king and, over the Philistines and, um, and the king figures out who this is and says, I don't want anything to do with this. So it says, so he, David, changed his behavior before them, before all the Philistines, and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish, who's the Philistine king, said to his servants, behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So all David's done to this point has just been faithful. He's accepted the anointing of God to be the king someday. And everybody in the world, it seems like, is out to get him. And the very next verse in the Bible, 
says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Which brings us to, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a midcom of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. You talk about being isolated and lonely for your faithfulness. That's what's happening to David. So what would you do if you're David? <sighs> okay, I'm in a cave. The only one I have is God. God, this isn't fair. God, I've been, a, I've been a good guy up to this point, and because I've been a good guy, don't you kind of owe me the kingship that you were gonna give me? Like, I, we, we might kind of give our resume to God to say, hey, you're good and I'm good, and so come on, we should work something out. Like, like this shouldn't be happening to me because I'm such a wonderful person. Instead, what does he do? He doesn't cry out based on his resume and his goodness. He simply cries out for the mercy of God. He says, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. David doesn't have a hint of, I deserve to have people around me. I deserve these things. One of the ways we can get into compromise in our own lives is by thinking, um, I, I'm a good enough person, I deserve to be liked. Like I think of teenagers and, and there's a, like I deserve to have friends and I deserve to have these friends. There's, we don't see that in scripture. I deserve to have that job. I deserve to have the spouse that I want. I deserve to not be single. I deserve to be, I deserve to have, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And here he just says, be merciful to me, O oh God, be merciful to me. I, I, I am owed nothing in my short span of a life, but if you would be so gracious. I'm hurting right now, God. That's what David's doing. <clears throat> the big temptation here is um, <clears throat> when I'm in this spot, I'll just compromise my faith just a little bit. Please remember this, that compromise is not the cure for connection. Compromise is not the cure for connection. If you're desiring um, connection, <clears throat> like think about a single man who's going, I really wanna, I wanna date and marry this woman. And then goes, oh, but it's not really, she, she's not gonna like this, so I'm gonna have to compromise, compromise, compromise. Com I'm gonna have to pretend I believe things I don't, pretend I'm somebody I'm not. You're not entering into a real relationship. She is now marrying somebody that is not you. You have given the wrong impression of who you really are and what you really hold dear. Compromise is not the cure for connection. Or I think of our, our young people. This is why this is so difficult for young people. I, I can compromise just a little bit and I can have the connection with all these friends. See the temptation? See what a pull that would be? But the reality is then you've got friends that aren't really friends with the fullness of who you are. And so it doesn't really even solve the problem that you're out to fix anyway. Or think about like connecting with neighbors. If you're someone going, I wanna just, I wanna get our neighbors together. I wanna start to get to know them, but I'm just gonna kind of compromise and become like them, you know, and I'm gonna pretend I believe like they believe and I'm, 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 I don't wanna stick out. And then all of a sudden you go, we're starting to form a deep friendship, but you know, deep in your heart, you're not. They're developing a relationship with a part of you. It's a, it's a, it's a, a watered-down, varnished version of who you really are. Compromise isn't the cure for connection. Look at what he says. He says, in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. And look at what he says next. I think this is really important. 
until the storms of destruction pass by. Until the storms of destruction pass by. Unfortunately, this might not work in every circumstance. However, in general, the phase you're in where you're going, I feel isolated, I feel lonely, remember this, it is a phase, it is not final. It might just be a season of life and a wave of life, but the reality is if, if, if we're feeling isolated for our faith, we can trick our minds into thinking like, well, this, that's, if, 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 I, if I get into that, then that's just the way it's going to be. If, if I don't just compromise to be accepted by these people, my neighbors, my friends at school, whatever it might be, then I might be lonely my entire life. Maybe, but it's just a phase. That's what David's in right now, is a phase. It's a wave of life. Just because you might have some neighbors that don't approve of you or don't like you right now doesn't mean they always won't. Just because you may have, listen, a kid that's an adult that doesn't seem to like being around you right now, it doesn't mean it's always gonna be that way. Just because you're a kid at school and you've got friends and you feel like you're on the outs, it doesn't always have to be that way. These circumstances around us are out of our control, but in the moment, there is something that we can control and we can do, and here it is. We can still, watch David, cry out to God. Verse two, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Listen to how positive this is. He will send from heaven and save me. Listen to the confidence that he has. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. This is so unlike the world. Steadfast love and faithfulness that comes from God. What a contrast to our finicky world that might accept us and love us one day and then the next day not. And we haven't changed, they've changed. My soul's in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. We have opportunities to glorify God. I think of, like, oftentimes, we, the, the, I think the lie enters our mind to say, if I stand for the Lord and people don't like it, and so I sort of get lumped into this category over here, that's all bad. And the reality is, and you know this, that the person that gets sort of excommunicated from the group because they stand for Christ, oftentimes there are people around them that may not say it, but they're inspired by their stance. I said, it, um, <clears throat> I said it like this, where is it? You will rarely hear from the people that you inspire. The school, you're at the PTA meeting and somebody, the school's gonna do something that's just ludicrous and everybody's going, that sounds ludicrous. And then that one mom stands up and goes, I need to speak about this. And she speaks. And you know what happens a lot? A lot of people go, thank goodness that somebody is saying that. I'm really, really glad that she's standing up and saying that. And all of a sudden, she's up there talking, and you know in her heart, I don't care how bold and brave she is, there's something in her going, anyone? Any, anyone with me on this? Well, that's good. Yeah, let's do a fist bump down here, right? 
I've started making a point of trying to go, when somebody does something that I go, I bet that was tough for them. I try to go to say, that was inspiring. Thank you for doing that. Our kids go to a Christian school. We get emails from them, and they have to make all these decisions all the time. And I get emails saying, hey, here's a change we're making. And I'm looking and going, I'm sure this was a really, really difficult decision. And you know, the only people that they are going to hear from are the people who disagree and the people who are angry. So I make a point every time to reply and say, I'm praying, if, if I don't like the decision, I try to just go, I'm praying for you. Like I try to be a little vague, you know, but if I look and go, good for you. I'm sure there's good reasons that you did this. You may hear for some people, but no, there's a lot of us that are in your corner. Good for you. You're trying to minister to these kids. Good for you. I'm here. I'm in your corner. If you need something, you'd let me know. Way to go. Amen. I get a lot of replies in a school of just a few hundred kids, and, I, and we actually, we just saw the guy that I replied to the most recent, uh, a couple days ago, and he said, you're the only one that ever replies. <laughs> Positively. <laughs> he says, I get a bunch of emails. You have opportunities to do this. Like, think about the people that inspire you to just live better, to just live more for Christ. Do, do you take the time to just go, good job, Man, thank you, that that was encouraging. You may feel alone right now, you're not. That was encouraging to me. Man, send that email, say a word to them. Somehow, not just, not not to be the one going, that was really great, I'm glad she said that. I hope no one knows that we agree. But like to go, I'm gonna go stand with you on this. You've encouraged me. Like how, how often do you actually do this? I talked to a guy, not a Rockland guy, but he was talking, he was talking with me, he was talking about his wife and they were, they were having some problems and stuff, and so he was chatting, and I was like, well, what do you love about her? And he goes, oh my gosh. And they've got little kids. He, she is great with our kids. She is this, she is this. And he just went on about how wonderful she was. And so I said, have you ever told her that? And he said, no, she knows. <laughs> and I said, I have an idea. <laughs> The way you just said it to me, take a moment, and he actually did, and like put it in a, he put it in a text while I was sitting there waiting with him. He sent her a note just to say, I know it's tough, but you inspire me with what you do. David is all by himself in a cave and he cries out to bring glory and honor to God. And then look at what, look at the remedy. This is, I'm, I'm gonna jump back to 1 Samuel for a moment. So he's in the cave. And it says, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, meaning they've heard that David is just in big trouble and that he heard he's hiding in a cave, they went down there to him. Oh, so if I'm David, I'm writing this psalm and I'm going, oh, look at all these people. Yeah, good. And then it says, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. So now I'm David and going, you just sort of added insult to injury, God. Here I was trying to glorify you, and now you have just put all these people around me. I don't have anything to give right now. Look what happens next. He became commander over them, and they were with him, about 400 men. David saw them and probably saw them and wondered if it was going to be a burden. And God says, I'm raising you an army. These are the people that are coming alongside you to help. You talk about a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we are. We live in a lonely, broken, 
area and there are people that are just so desperately looking for connection. People that would say, I want to be fully known and I want to be fully loved. When, I've told you this before, but one of my very favorite stories, this is, this is an application for us just as a church. There's a couple that joined our church that um, <clears throat> I at, we were at a breakfast with them and we said, well, when did you really like, decide that you wanted to be a part of the church? And she said, it was out by the bathrooms. I said, I don't know if I want to hear this story, but continue. <laughs> and uh, she said, they walked up to Rockland one morning between the services. You know, we have fellowship time between the services. They walked up to Rockland, and I know who the guy is, greeted them, genuinely so excited to see him, greets all the time. He didn't, he didn't know him, so he was just chatting him up a little bit. We're so glad you're here. And then she said he went over, and he just opened the door. And it wasn't these doors. It was the ones down the hall, like the ones by Fellowship Hall. And she just said, we just heard the roar of people talking in Fellowship Hall. And they walked in, and she said she looked down, and she just saw people standing there having coffee, donuts, and genuinely enjoying each other's company. She said, I saw a family. And then she started walking down the hall, and she said they didn't even get as far as the bathrooms before they said, this is our church. Hadn't heard any music. Hadn't heard a sermon. Hadn't been in here to see the view or anything like that. She just looked and said, this is a family that I want to be a part of. Amen. Friends, there are needs out there that people are so desperate to be known. And as the church of Jesus Christ, especially if you're here going, I don't know about this loneliness stuff, I sort of feel bad for people, you have an opportunity as we're here as a family to meet the people around you, to talk to the people around you, to get them and just go, you wanna go get lunch and let's actually have a conversation. Let's get, to, let's get to know each other and may God be glorified by these relationships because sometimes it might be that the remedy that they have to their loneliness is you. It's us as a body.